I'm Alexandra Joe, Content Manager at Parting Stone, and this is the Death Care Decoded Podcast. In this podcast, we explore trends in the death profession, uncovering valuable insights through conversations with industry thought leaders. Our mission is to bring forward-thinking education to death care professionals. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of talking with Tiana Darjan, founder of Queer Community Death Care in Ontario, Canada, which offers a space of support for all members of the Two-Spirit LGBTQIA community in matters regarding end-of-life, death, dying, and grief. In part one of this conversation, Tiana shares her personal journey into providing accessible death care support and hosting death cafes specifically for the queer and trans community. We talk about why having death and end-of-life care support that is specific for the queer community is an important thing, and how the needs of the LGBTQIA and two-spirit community can be met in better ways for all in the death profession. You're jumping into a conversation with myself and Tiana Dargent. So my name is Tiana Dargent. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a white, cis, queer woman of mostly settler descent living in Ottawa, Ontario, which is unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. I'm queer, 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 super queer. Um, I call myself a dyke. Um, I'm a dyke-leaning bisexual. I run Queer Community Death Care, um, which is just my own little old self by myself, but um, it really talks about what I want to offer, which is an, a community-based death care practice for queer folks. I did a lot of looking around on the website. I was like, this, this is what we need. This is what everyone needs. This is amazing. And here we are. So I'm, I'm so, so excited. I just want to talk about what you do and why that's important. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I think I'd like to like give a bit of background about how this even mm-hmm. um, came to being something yes. that I do. I'm based in Canada. So first off, a few um, details will be different than what's experienced in the U.S., but we have like a similar death culture. And my father died of cancer when I was 18. And my family was um, like Christian-ish, you know, like we do the things, but like we're not super religious. And um, so we didn't have like a death culture in my family. And as my dad was dying, my parents were separated. Like no one guided me through that or like encouraged me to like visit him in the hospital. So I was like terrified, didn't want to go, like really did not connect with him in his death and kind of just like powered through it while I was in my last year of high school. And um, yeah, didn't didn't know how to deal and was in shock basically the whole time that he was dying and after he died. And um, then after that, my mom kind of like split and I was living my own on my own like as a later teenager and just not making like the kinds of choices that were like good for me as a person. Um, just trying to like find stability as much as I could in like a very like unstable time of my life. Um, and so I did like bonkers things like get married to a straight cis man <laughs> and have children and move to the suburbs, which are like not me. Um <laughs> at all. Um, But I was just like, I need to feel safe and secure. And so these are the things that I know are safe and secure things. And um, 
and I hadn't been dealing with my grief. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm actually hella gay. I cannot (laughs) be in this relationship. It doesn't work. Um, So we split and we have shared custody and have like a lovely co-parenting relationship now. Um, But yeah, our marriage was like garbage because it made no actual sense. And as I was like coming back to who I am and who I need to be and what I need to feel like myself and free and fulfilled. I was like, oh, I need to deal with my grief and like my relationship to death. And as I was living a life that I enjoyed more and was like more reflective of me, I became terrified of dying. Like before I didn't give a shit. And as I cared about my life, I was like, I could lose it. And that would be terrible. And so I ended up having this really huge, like, phobia of dying and like, dreams about sudden deaths and um, like, intrusive thoughts (laughs) about like, what if I'm walking down the street and a bus just suddenly hit like, just like, it was always on my mind. Um, And so this amazing woman, her name is Julie Keon. She lives in like the Ottawa Valley, which is like a super rural, sweet place about an hour away from me. She was um, my, uh, what are they called? Prenatal, like how to give birth teacher. But it was like a class. So it was like a class that she was giving to parents about like how to prep for birth. And it was like, you know, natural pain management and like, what can you expect and all cool. these things. And she taught that beautifully And after she taught that, she transitioned to being a marriage celebrant and then after that to being a death doula. And we had always stayed in touch and she was giving a course, which was preparing for your own death. And it was like uh, once a month over a few months or something, drive out to the country, do this little course with a few other people. And we would tackle like one aspect of three planning for your own death. And while I was doing that, I was just fascinated. (laughs) I was just very interested. Um, And so I did all the things. I have my little workbook that's like all finished. (laughs) And we all left with um, like a little death box that has like, when I die, anybody can open this and know everything that they need to know uh, or if I'm incapacitated or anything like that. And so I was just like still very curious and um, my, I had a new partner at the time who had taken um, a contemplative end-of-life care training and talked about what that was like. And I knew a few other people who had taken it as well. So I was just like, oh, I'm just like, I'm not done learning about this, you know. And so I was learning. So I signed up for this program. Um, and I was so excited to meet other people who were just like nerds about death because I fucking love nerds. Um, and <laughs> I was so excited to, um, you know, just like get my hands messy <laughs> in it. Um, and the program was great. It had like all these like co-op placements and things. And as it turned out, the year that I had signed up for it was uh, the first year of the pandemic. And so it all switched to online, which was fine in the end. (laughs) It's just the new reality. Um, But I was missing that, like, networking, the community building around it. So I was taking this program, and it was great. It was um, taught by a really amazing, diverse cast of instructors. 
And what was interesting to me was that the participants were almost entirely white women, straight white women. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, this is interesting. Um, and so there was a lot of like opportunities for us to share about ourselves. And I just kept being like, I'm gay, I'm queer, I'm very queer. I'm looking at all of this through a queer lens, folks, and I'm gonna <laughs> make that obvious to all of you and you're gonna have to accept that. And um, and that was fine. And everyone was super nice, but I, and I went through the whole program and in the end, I didn't even realize while I was taking it that there wasn't, there wasn't queer specific education within that program. There was tangential things like being mindful of somebody's racial background, disabilities, uh, trauma histories, things like that. But there was nothing very overtly about the queer experience. Um, but I, at the time I was like, how can it be that different? <laughs> we all die. We're all just humans dying. <laughs> and so I finished this and I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Um, oh, I know. I will volunteer at the local queer hospice. That's what I'll do. And then I was like, my goodness, there is not a local queer hospice. And I was like, maybe there is a provincial queer hospice. No. Maybe there's a national queer hospice. <laughs> no. Um, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I to be so naive. <laughs> um, and so that's what started me on like the path of being like, okay, death care for queer people is what I'm interested in. I'm interested because as a queer person, I seek other queer people for all the services that I receive because I want to be speaking somebody who speaks the same language as me, that I don't need to justify my existence to, that I don't need to explain my relationships to, um, you know, like I'm a non-monogamous person, our partnership constellation is wacky, um, you know, I'm platonically married, I have a relationship with my romantic partner that's far away um just like all of these different things and so whenever I'm getting like a massage a lawyer an accountant anything I'm like who's the queer person I can talk to so knowing that there isn't many people who are like the queer death doula the queer uh funeral guide of some kind I was just like I just want to be in that space or make that space a little bit bigger, a little bit more accessible, a little bit more present for others. So that was kind of what kicked me off. Um, so I started emailing all of the hospices that are local to me, just saying like, are you interested in having some kind of queer programming or um, anything like that, you know, just to make a space that already exists a little bit more queer friendly. Nobody answered me. I finally got connected with a home hospice association, which is a provincial association. And they were like, oh, well, we're not really taking new hospice volunteers at this time because it's COVID, but we're looking for somebody to do death cafes virtually. Um, and would you be interested in doing a queer death cafe? And I was just like, sure, why not? <laughs> like, let's do that. Um, so it, that's how I started um, community building around it. And so for two plus years now, I've been doing monthly death cafes for the queer community. Um, 
virtually on Zoom in English and people from all over the world show up to them. Um, and it's been beautiful. Um, there's people who are very old, people who are very young, um, people from countries where being gay is absolutely illegal and they don't speak. They are terrified to express themselves in these spaces because they don't know who might be watching or reporting them. And so just being in that space with other queer people to them is amazing. Um, so it's been very touching um, and sad at times, but also really heartwarming. Like everybody that I've met through that has wanted to build connection around end of life care with other queer people um, and has been mm -hmm. going like, oh, I wish there were more spaces like this, you know, and there are a few others. Um, but I don't think there's quite as many as there are like regular deaf cafes. So that's been interesting. No, definitely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I Wow. And okay, so I have so, so much to say and ask about and respond yeah. to after all of that. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and keep it organized. Mm -hmm. But first of all, I'm just really floored and shocked and taken aback at how many similar points our stories mm. have. Losing a parent at 18, mm -hmm. being relatively independent and a little self-destructive maybe after that mm -hmm. point, uh, marrying a cis man. <laughs> <laughs> that is not <laughs> the answer. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Not the path for me. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, just realizing that to, like, save myself, I needed to actually confront my mother's death and move forward with that. And, yeah. you know, my journey took a visual art journey. And I did, like, a lot of, like, a master's program where I was just dealing with grief and loss. But that in and of itself kind of opened up my my queerness and myself. And, and so just those similar points in the journey were just like, what? 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 Wow. Okay. <laughs> I hear you. You know, yeah. and um, yeah, so that's really cool. And I just am really connecting and empathizing with you right now. Yes. So yeah. But then also getting into what you were saying about how as an out queer person, you are choosing queer people and services for everything that you do, mm -hmm. right? Like massages and roofers and, you know, bakers, whatever it is. And the fact that a lot of, a lot of people in our community can't do that for end of life care mm -hmm. is really astounding to me. And, you know, I, I attended a talk by my dear friends, Tim McLoon and Sarah Murphy at the NFDA conference last year, which is the National Funeral Directors Association conference. And the talk was on connecting with the LGBTQ plus community in death care as funeral directors. How do we connect with that community more? And they were offering, you know, a lot of education around vocabulary and what different pronouns are and how to ask for them and how valuable putting even just like a rainbow flag on your website is just to let people know it's a safe space. You don't have to be queer. And the amount of pushback mm -hmm. that came from just those gentle suggestions was really overwhelming. And 
people just didn't understand like, well, I'm not gay. Why do I have to do it? I'm not gay. Why do I have to say it? And you know, it, you just answered why, because we need a place where we don't have to justify our existence or explain who and how we love Mm -hmm. and justify our humanity, especially at death. If we're dealing, planning at death, right. If we're planning for our own death or someone that we care about and love and have loved and lost, you know, like that's a, a particularly impactful and vulnerable and sensitive time. And you just articulated why that's so important, even if you're an ally, even if you're, you know, not a member of the community, but truly want to serve everyone in your community in an equitable way. And so I think that that's something that like everyone in this space and everyone at large really needs to hear and understand. Well, that's just it. I think, um, you know, all of these systems like healthcare systems and death care, like they're inextricably linked. Um, They're built with the the majority in mind, right? The normal majority, whatever that means at the time. And they're just built little by little over the decades. And that's just the very regular way things are. And we're not the only people who are excluded from that. You know, like regular people are excluded from that too. Disabled people are excluded in many ways. Lower class income earners are excluded in many ways. Racialized people are excluded in many ways. People who've been incarcerated are excluded in many ways. It goes on and on and on. Um, It doesn't, it's no good for everybody. It's already not good for everybody. And when you make a system or you change a system so that it includes more people or includes the most disenfranchised person, actually what happens is everyone gets better service. You know, the a normal person, mm-hmm. like a straight cis, like two people with two kids, like they have weird needs too. They just are not as out about it. And if they have more <laughs> options or, um, or a more inclusive caring space, their needs will be met, better met too. So supporting people who are different than you actually can be selfish and you can support yourself that way. Um, which is the way I like to frame it when I'm doing workshops (laughs) with exactly uh, in the death care field. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have to do that sometimes too, but when I am, you know, trying to get people to understand why something is valuable, a lot of times I'll have to be like, and this is how it will make your business more money if you actually like hire more diversely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah, because there are actually stats for that. Yeah. That shouldn't be the angle that gets you to do that thing. But sometimes here we are. That's that's how to get the work yeah. done. And so, Absolutely. Some, yeah. Like many businesses, of course, make decisions based on what gives them the most income or the highest revenue for mm-hmm. their output. And any choice that a business can make to welcome more people through their doors will be a good financial choice for them. Um, They might Mm -hmm. have resistance to dealing with people who are different than them. I know many people that I've taught have been like, oh, I'm really worried about getting it wrong. So I'm actually Mm -hmm. not going to do anything. And, you know, 
I get it. I mean, there are times when I'm like, ooh, I don't want to engage with this person or this idea because I know I'm probably going to fuck it up and I don't want to feel the shame associated with that. I don't want to be judged by this person for getting it wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But in the end, by doing nothing, I am absolutely 100% letting them down where if I say, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've never done this before. I'm uh, a little bit nervous because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to meet your needs. But, you know, can we collaborate on this together? I'm really open to learning. If you're open to teaching me, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? You know, something like that is mm-hmm. goes a lot farther than, oh, I better not say the wrong thing. And just like leaving a whole topic off the menu for conversation. Absolutely. I had a very similar conversation with Joelle Simone Anthony about racism in death care, Mm -hmm. about the fear of like, I'm just afraid, so afraid to offend that I'm not going to explore or try and learn anything new and just do what I've always been doing. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a surefire way to offend if you just remain in, you know, ignorance or in fear Mm -hmm. and, you know, don't trust that we all make mistakes and it's okay. We're not going to cancel you, (laughs) you know, like we're, we're here to all help each other learn. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good, really good message for a lot of people in the death care space. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we, like we, especially here in, you know, the death care profession don't want to offend someone in their most vulnerable time. You yeah. know, we don't want to do that, but we also want to, yeah, be, be equitable and be inclusive and be safe mm-hmm. spaces. So, Yeah. I don't want to take up more than more of your time than I allotted myself, <laughs> but I feel like I could talk to you for a very long time. Yeah. It is so wonderful to meet you, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast so yeah, much. Yeah, this was a great conversation. I, I'm i glad I listened to a couple podcasts first because I was like, I don't know what I'm getting into. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, totally. You sent me. They were so great, and I knew that we would have a wonderful conversation Um, and that you would be easy to talk to, which is absolutely true. Oh, good. I'm so glad that's the impression that came across. That's really good. Thank you. Here's a thank you note from one of Parting Stone's happy customers. I want you to know that you have lessened my suffering and optimized my joy. Thank you. Love, Andy. Andy.